as wives, do we owe our husbands unconditional respect? Do we just need love while husbands just need respect? That's what I've been talking about all week on my To Love, Honor, and Vacuum blog. And today on the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast, I want to summarize some of those articles and point us to something better. You know, this has been a wild ride for me this week. I was not expecting this at all. Um, it all started from just something that I posted by accident on my profile without thinking about it very much last week. And 300 comments later, I realized I've got to write about this. And so I took a look at Love and Respect, and I just took a look at the sex chapter, and I was only planning on writing about sex and what that book said about sex. And then the floodgates opened, and I said so much more. And my your comments all were overwhelming. I was not intending to talk about this on the podcast. I actually changed the whole blog this week so that we could address this and this alone. Um, so we'll be returning to reg- regular scheduled programming next week. But today, let me summarize what my posts were about and then point us to something better because I'm really not trying to destroy or tear down. What I want to do is build us up in Christ. So here we go. Love and Respect is one of the best-selling Christian marriage books out there. It's put out by Focus on the Family, written by Emerson Egrich. It was published in 2004. And that central premise is that women need love and men need respect. And so we need to learn how to respect him in the way that he needs. So I wanted to see how exactly he talks about sex, because I've heard a lot of problematic things about the book. And I thought, well, you know, I don't want to attack the book on the whole. I just want to look at sex, because that's really what I'm known for, to love, honor, and vacuum. So I did. I, I skimmed through the entire book to try to see what he says about sex. Now, remember, this is a marriage book. So marriage books are supposed to talk about sex. I mean, sex is a pretty important part of marriage. But interestingly, in Love and Respect... He has um, the first section is on how husbands can show love to their wives. And so the different needs that a wife has, needs like openness and closeness and things like that. Nowhere in any of the places where it talks about what she needs, does it mention that she needs sex. In fact, sex is portrayed as an afterthought. You know, if you give her openness, then she will become more responsive to you sexually. Um, If you're empathetic about her emotional needs, she'll be more empathetic to your sexual needs. So in the section that for to help husbands help women, it never tells them anything about how, you know, women might have a desire for sex and women really do need you to help them feel good. So then I turn to the section of the book where it talks about what husbands need and what wives need to do for their husbands. And I read the sex chapter and there are very few times in my life where I have been as flabbergasted and angry at the same time. Because, and I summarized this in in my post on Monday, what he was saying about sex was that, first of all, men need physical release. And he kept calling it that throughout the chapter. He kept saying men need physical release. He said sex sometimes, physical release sometimes. He never said making love. He said men need physical release. And um, in fact, that is how they experience respect. And when you give them physical release, they become more affectionate. Now, a lot of women don't understand this, but you need to understand that if you meet his needs, that's the only way he's going to be able to meet your needs for love. And not just that, but this is such a huge need for men that when it isn't met, men are going to stray. And this is why men get drawn into affairs is because we don't have sex. So he spends, it's only a nine page chapter. And he spends like four pages, I think it is talking about how if you don't have sex with him, he's going to have affairs. 
He also lays the blame for these affairs at the women's feet. Um, let me just read you a couple of quotes. The cold hard truth is that men are often lured into affairs because they are sexually deprived at home. Or later, after a final story of an affair, Emerson quotes from a letter her husband wrote, and the husband had an affair. And Emerson quotes him approvingly. And the husband says, I don't blame her for my immorality, but she doesn't own up to anything. I'm not blaming her, but she is not blameless. And that's the thrust of what he's saying, is that if a guy has an affair, it's because she isn't giving him sex. And then he spends um, a few pages at the end talking about how if you don't have sex with him enough, he's going to be tempted to look at other women. And in fact, all men seriously struggle um, with lust and with looking at other women. And when we don't have sympathy for their struggles, and when we ask them um, not to do this, then we make them clam up because it's impossible for husband uh, to actually remain mentally faithful to his wife, basically. And that's all he says about sex. Okay, that's it. So I summarized the whole chapter uh, that he wrote about sex this way. A husband has a need for physical release. A woman does not have a need for sex. Her need is only for emotional connection, which she won't get unless she gives him sex. Men experience respect through their wives giving them physical release. If wives don't meet their needs, husbands will be tempted to have an affair, and affairs tend to be caused by women not having sex. Men are visual and will be tempted by other women. When we don't allow a husband to confess that he finds other women attractive, he will clam up and will cut himself off from us emotionally. Here's the deal. I've written a lot of books, okay? <laughs> and I know that you can never say everything that you want to say about sex in one chapter. Um, in my book, Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage, only one of the thoughts had to do with sex. And so when I was writing that chapter, I had to think to myself, what are the most important things that I want to say about sex? Like, if I can only say a few things, what are the things that I want people to take away from that chapter? And so as he was writing the sex chapter, this is what authors think. And so these are the most important things that he thinks we need to know. All right. Men need physical release. <laughs> if they don't get it, they're going to have an affair. And all men struggle with lust. Now, I have, to, I have talked about this whole idea that boys will be boys and all men struggle with lust ad infinitum on the blog, and I think that's a, such a harmful theology, and it's not at all in line with what the Bible says. I think that we should be calling people for, to more. And I think that the more that pastors treat sex like this, it is a need that only men have, and that if you don't meet their need, they are going to stray, the more we ruin women's libidos. Seriously, if women grow up in churches hearing over and over again, you are a stumbling block to guys, your body is dangerous, but then when you get married, if you don't have sex, he's going to be tempted to look at other women or he's going to have an affair, then we feel objectified all the time. We're objectified when we're teenagers, when we're told that we're stumbling blocks, and we're objectified when we're married, when we're told that our feelings don't matter. And so it's no wonder that women have no libidos Pastors need to stop saying this because you'll notice all the things that he doesn't say in the sex chapter. He never says that women should feel good during sex too. That is never once mentioned in the book. He makes sex only about the husband's physical release without ever saying that women can have orgasms too. And in fact, you know, guys, you really should help her to have an orgasm. That's an important part about loving her. He never says anything about how sex is not just about physical release. It's a deep knowing of each other. You know, the starting point for far too many Christian teachers is that sex is about the husband. Um, and it drives me crazy because that is not 
God's starting point. God made sex to be about a mutual knowing, and it's about mutual pleasure. We may not approach sex the same way, but it is for both of us. But he never says that. He never talks about how some women can have higher sex drives. He never talks about porn-ravaged marriages. Because honestly, if you were married to a porn addict and you read this book, what you would hear is that his porn use is your fault for not having sex enough. Nothing can be more untrue. For most couples today, the porn use predated the wedding. He was already addicted before he got married. And in most marriages, the biggest problem about libido when a husband uses porn is that he doesn't want to have sex with his wife. Like porn kills his libido. So this advice is just totally terrible for anyone in a porn addicted marriage. Doesn't tell them what to do at all. And so I was just so upset with this whole sex chapter because it took something beautiful that God created for both of us. And it made it into something which was only physical and only for the man, which is such a distortion of what God teaches and so far from God's heart. And so I wrote this post. It went absolutely crazy. And people were asking me what else to say about the book. And so on Tuesday, I wrote about how unconditional respect is not right. I took a look at what Emerson Egrich is saying respect is. It's interesting. In the book, he never actually defines it. He keeps talking about how women can either be perpetually criticizing and nagging and scolding their husbands, or they can choose to follow God and be respectful and quiet. But it never actually says what respectful and quiet looks like. It's as if it's supposed to be self-evident. So I, I took a look through all of the examples in the book. And basically what he's saying is that it's disrespectful for a wife to make demands of a husband or to want them to change in any way. And he gives a story, an absolutely horrible story, about how he and his sons were slobs, leaving wet towels on the bed and candy wrappers outside a wastebasket. And his wife kept trying to get them to change. And when she went away for a week, they were able to be slobs for a week and they loved it and didn't miss her. And when she came home, she realized that they actually enjoyed being without her because they could do what they wanted. And so she decided that she would just let them do whatever they wanted. What I find so strange about this is that it didn't occur to Emerson that that's a really weird story. Like a woman wanting her husband and sons to not leave wet towels on the bed. That's perfectly reasonable. Like that's normal. <laughs> and yet he's saying that she was being disrespectful for wanting him to put the wet towel somewhere else. Now, if if the resolution to this story had just been she learned that she had been communicating in a harmful way or she had been nagging and she learned how to voice her concerns differently and we listened to her and I backed her up in getting her, our sons to do what she wanted, that would have been fine. But no, the resolution to the story is that she stopped asking them to clean up because she realized they liked her better when they were allowed to be slobs. So he is disrespecting his wife and he's also allowing their sons to disrespect her. I mean, that's just horrendous. But this is how he defines respect. There's another story where the husband is a workaholic and he's instructing the wife how to handle this. And he says, what you're allowed to do is you're allowed to quietly say, honey, the children need you and you give so much to their life that nobody else can do. And I'm not sure how much you realize you're missed here. And so we would so appreciate it if you spent more time at home. And then she's supposed to shut up and she's not allowed to say anything else for at least 10 to 20 days. 
And only then is she allowed to say something else again, but it must only be a few sentences. So a, the only thing a woman is allowed to do if her husband is doing something wrong is to say two or three sentences and then shut up. That's it. And he says this applies even in cases where your husband is straying or is drinking. So even in cases of adultery or addiction, this is what a woman is supposed to do. I find this tremendously problematic. And this got my blood boiling. But here's the behind the scenes stuff of what's going on. I wrote more yesterday about the underlying flaw in this book, Love and Respect, but also in a lot of other Christian marriage books. And it really is that it is asking women to follow their husbands instead of following God. Whenever we ask the question, how can I fix my marriage or how can I make my husband happy? We are asking the wrong question. The only question we're ever supposed to be asking is how do I glorify Jesus in this situation? And sometimes Jesus just wants you to be kind and nice. And sometimes Jesus gets out the whip of cords and turns over the money changers tables. God wants different things from us in different situations. And when we are seeking Jesus, then his will will be done. A lot of people tell me, but Sheila, God tells women that they are supposed to follow their husbands. So the way that we follow God is by following our husbands. Well, if you take that to logical extreme, what you're really saying is that God's will is for us to do our husband's will, which means that God's will is the husband's will, which means that God is actually subordinate to our husbands. We're making our husbands into idols. That is so dangerous. Jesus just wants us serving him. He really does. When we put Jesus first, we spur each other on to love and good deeds. And that's going to mean that we serve our husbands sacrificially. That's going to mean that we love them tremendously, that we don't nag, that we don't scold, that we talk to them properly, but that we also refuse to enable sin, that we draw boundaries, that we act as iron sharpens iron in our marriage, because that's one of the reasons that God put us here. God's will is that all of us are transformed into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ, from Romans 8, 29. What we should always be asking is how at this moment can I act like Jesus and can I point other people to Jesus? And that clarifies a whole lot about how you're supposed to be acting in your marriage. But whenever we put our husbands above that, the marriage advice is going to fall flat. If we say, ladies, you're not supposed to ask how you can glorify Jesus. You're supposed to ask how you can serve your husband or how you can make your husband happy. Then you're subordinating God to your husband. And that is wrong. I know that this is controversial, but I really believe this is the number one reason by the, why the majority of Christian books go off track is because they're not focusing on Jesus. And when you're not focusing on Jesus, then you're not focusing on perfection. And so then things are going to go wrong. They really are. <laughs> but here's what really blew me away this week. The majority, the vast majority of you agreed with me. I was not prepared for that. I mean, Love and Respect is one of the best-selling Christian books. People buy the CDs. It's studied in marriage groups everywhere. <laughs> Churches host Love and Respect simulcasts and conferences. And so I was expecting to get huge numbers of people criticize me and attack me. I didn't get that. I got a few, yes, but very, very few. The vast majority were saying, oh, thank goodness someone finally said it over and over and over again. You just need to look at the comments to see. And I'll put a link in the description to this podcast for some of those posts. But most people agreed. So then my question becomes, if most people agree with me, 
how did this book get to be such a bestseller? And I think I have the answer. One woman told me in the comments on Monday that she looked at Goodreads and I had actually rated this book four stars a couple of years ago. I seriously don't remember this at all, but I had. I had rated the book four stars. And I guess when I got on Goodreads, I just kind of looked at all the books in my closet on my shelf, entered them all on Goodreads, and then gave them a rating. I had never actually read Love and Respect all the way through. I had heard a lot about it. It was sent to me in a big box of books when we started speaking at marriage conferences as, as one of the books that we should have. It was put out by Focus on the Family. So I assumed it was a great book. You know, I heard people quote from it all the time, so I gave it four stars. And I think that's what's happening, is that we assume that because a book is a bestseller, because it's put out by Focus on the Family, because it has a a good publisher, then it must be good. Well, we need to stop assuming that. I think this is really a case of the emperor has no clothes. And when we start speaking up, and saying, no, this is unbiblical, and this takes us away from Jesus, people will listen, because most people instinctively know this already. My friends, you are worth more than the advice and love and respect in books like this. God wants marriages that don't just stay together, but that reflect him, where people grow, where children are cherished and treated well, where we are equipped and rested to go out and fulfill God's calling in this world to bring his kingdom on earth. But that is not going to start happening unless we start demanding better. Demanding better from publishers, demanding better from our pastors, demanding better from our small group leaders. (laughs) I believe the change is coming. I mean, I could not believe the response I got this week. It was so encouraging. Change is coming because people are starting to focus on Jesus rather than on all the things that we have emphasized in our Christian culture in the past. You know, even just this week, there's a big outcry about this new Gillette ad. Uh, It features a bunch of men looking in the mirror. And as they're looking in the mirror, all these thoughts are going through their head about the Me Too movement and about how men men can be pigs and boys will be boys. But then at the end, the ad is calling men to something better. And you see all of these men standing up and taking a stand and just acting like good, good guys. I understand that some men were upset about the beginning of the ad where, you know, if a guy looks in the mirror, he should feel condemnation. But what I want to ask you today is, ladies, when you look in the mirror, is there maybe some things that we should be hearing? Some voices that should be asking us questions? Questions like, how could you let others deny that you are made in the image of God? Why were you silent when you heard pastors say things that put women down or that enabled abuse? Why did you not stand up in the power and strength of the Spirit and say something? For ladies, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. We can do better too. I don't think it's just that God is calling men to do better. I think it's that God is calling women to do better. He is calling women to stand up and take our rightful place under the throne of Jesus, where we are looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And when we are placing our faith in Jesus and not in pastors and not in our husbands and not in authors, but in Jesus, he has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. You do not need anything other than Jesus. (laughs) So let's study him. Let's get to know him. Let's rest in him. And then let's rely on his strength to make some honest to goodness changes. 
You know, we can do that when we stop listening to bad advice and start standing up. So next time someone says, hey, you want to do a love and respect study at our church? Don't just say, oh, no, thanks. Say no, because that book is wrong. And I'll tell you why. Next time someone suggests reading that book or tells you that they that they are reading that book, tell them, I'm really sorry to hear that because you're missing out on what Jesus has for you and explain to them why. Let's not stay silent anymore. And again, it isn't just this book. It's anything that puts someone else in the place of Jesus in your life. Let me read to you from Philippians 3. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let's press on towards Jesus. Let's forget some of this stuff that we have been seeped in bad teaching and let's claim what Jesus has for us, which is a full life living in the image of God, pointing people to his holiness, pointing people to his will, and acting that way in our marriage to spur one another on to love and good deeds. If we all did that, there would be love and respect in our marriages, but there would be love and respect for both of us, because all of us would be acting as Jesus. Peacemaker versus peacekeeper. They're not the same thing. One addresses conflicts and deals with them. One shoves conflicts under the rug to keep things on an even keel. God calls us to make peace, and sometimes that's messy, even in marriage. That's one of the thoughts in my book, Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. Don't settle for an okay marriage. Get a great one with my book, Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. And now for something completely different, we're here with the Millennial (laughs) Marriage segment where my daughter Rebecca is joining us. Hi, Rebecca. Hello. (laughs) And I know the first part of this podcast was really heavy, and so I want to talk about something that I actually enjoy. That sparks joy, actually. It sparks joy. (laughs) And that (laughs) that is the new Netflix show, Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. Who is just amazingly adorable. She really is. And I just want to say right off the bat, I I want to talk about this right now because I know all over Christendom, this show is going to get so much criticism and there's going to be all these articles about how real Christians shouldn't watch Tidying Up with Marie Kondo for all kinds of reasons. And I want to say loud and proud, I really like the show. (laughs) I loved the show. And you know what? Yeah, there are things about it that are weird. And so you just watch those things and you say, yeah, I reject those things. But there's part of it that actually is really good. And she has a wonderful relationship with her daughters. Yeah, a wonderful relationship. I follow her on Instagram, too. And all the little things with her daughters are just so sweet and so wholesome. (laughs) Now, okay, my relationship with Marie Kondo started maybe two years ago when my cousin Danielle said that this book had had totally changed her life. Um, What is it? The magical... the magic, the magic, ti- the the magical, Art. the life changing magic of tidying up. That's the life changing magic of tidying That's up. That's what it is. And we and I read the book, and then I made Rebecca read the book. No, I haven't read the book. You, you didn't make me read. I want to. I've asked you for the book for oh. like a year and a half, and you haven't given it to me yet. <laughs> okay, well, that's because I think your aunt is currently reading the book. But after ah. she's done, <laughs> it's going around our family. But you know the, what she says, and this is this is the big difference between Marie Kondo and all the other decluttering people, is it's not about deciding what to throw out. It's about deciding what to keep. Exactly. And why don't you explain how you see that? I think the difference is when we think about our possessions, often it's so 
stressful because we have all these things that we've bought on impulse purchases or without thinking or simply because our house was too messy for us to find the thing that we actually have. Yeah, that's a big one for me. (laughs) Um, Like speaking from the person who has eight different pairs of sewing scissors, (laughs) right? Because I keep getting lost in my fabric boxes. But the thing is, when you look at your possessions and you decide, not only do I want to throw this out, but is this something I really want to cherish and take forward and take care of for the next foreseeable future? That changes your perspective a lot, right? Because it's not about a negative thing. It's about a choice that is actually quite positive. And yeah, this will enrich my life. So I'm going to take good care of it. And I think the other thing is that stress is often caused by just feeling overwhelmed with so much stuff and with not being able to find things. And so you walk into a room and it's just not peaceful. Well, and not only that, if you have all these things you don't actually care about, it's such an obligation to take care of them versus if you have things that you're like, yeah, I know why I have this and I appreciate this and this really helps me and my family, then you almost want to treat it with more kindness yeah, and with more thoughtfulness. Yeah, and so that, and, and, and she gives you so many tips on how not to feel badly about letting something go. Even if it's been mm-hmm. cherished in your family for generations, if you hate it, if it doesn't bring you any joy, <laughs> you know, you can <laughs> let it go. And so in her book, she has, um, she has the different categories of things to tidy up, you know, clothing and books and papers and all your miscellaneous stuff, which would be all your kitchen stuff and everything like that. And then your mementos. And what she does is she suggests that you take everything, like all of your clothing and put it on the bed, like every single item of clothing. And and, in the the book, she has you do it by by type. So like all of your underwear and then all of your blouses and all of your skirts kind of thing. And you look at those things each. Now, in the TV show, it's not done like that exactly. It's like every item of clothing is on the bed (laughs) (laughs) and it's mountains of clothing. Um, and so it, it, it does go into a lot more detail in the book. But I really found a lot of the episodes, not all of them, but a lot of the episodes were really fun to watch. And they were so marriage affirming. Exactly. That's what I got from the show as well. Especially there's one where there's a couple who had two kids and they were downsizing and had to move to a smaller apartment from living in like, I think they said a full-sized house. Yeah, episode three. I'm pretty sure this is episode three. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. But um, they were just wonderful. <laughs> just so encouraging to each other and so in it all together as a full family it was actually really nice to watch yeah and it's like in that situation the mom had felt responsible for keeping track of everybody's stuff and then Mm -hmm. as they went through the process it was like all the members of the family realized this isn't mom's job this is all of us well and also the kids even from the get-go were like well i mean i try to clean up but i don't know where anything goes because they were never actually taught how to clean they were never taught where things go because they were they had because they had so much stuff as soon as you had a place for everything you had to change it around again and an 8-year-old can only keep track of that for so long yeah and i love okay i actually wrote down a quote that the mom said in this episode i want to read it to you i wasn't setting myself up as a mom to win i was doing too much mm you know, and that's so true. A lot of us are not setting ourselves up to win. And she said this about her daughter, too. Um, so they put all of her daughter's clothes on the bed. Okay, mountain, mountain of clothing. And she says, seeing that many clothes all at once, I am definitely not setting her up to win at life. And she's only 11. You know, so it's yeah. like, what are we doing with our kids? Exactly. And I don't think that a lot of people recognize just how the, the kinds of habits you get into when you're in your preteen years, when you're in your childhood, they're the ones that do carry on into your adulthood. So if you have this propensity towards impulse purchases, having a lot of stuff, I mean, that's not going to really prepare kids for good financial decisions. 
And also, it's going to make them really stressed when they hit adult years, and all of a sudden, they have to take care of it all themselves. Okay, and I, I want to do this one because um, this is this is one of my favorite bits of the book, and she shows this in the TV show too, is how you fold clothing. <laughs> you actually started doing this before I did. Yeah. I think. I've been doing this since I was 17. Yeah, like how you fold t-shirts and underwear and everything so that it's standing up in the drawer so that when you open your drawer, you can see everything all at once. So instead of a pile that goes from bottom to top, you fold them in such a way that they're really, really pretty and they go from like front to back of the drawer. Yeah, almost like a filing system more so than just a pile. Yeah, that's perfect. That's exactly how it is. And and everything gets folded. You make rectangles out of everything and then you fold them. And here's what I just loved. In the first episode, it was on tidying with toddlers mm-hmm. and she showed how her daughters loved folding stuff <laughs> and they were toddlers. And it reminded me of what I used to do with you guys. Yeah, You know, like when you guys were toddlers... We had fun, like we incorporated housework into our daily life. I hated playing with you guys. <laughs> you know, like no offense, but I was just never one of those moms to play. But but you loved folding pillowcases mm-hmm. and dishcloths and folding stuff in rectangles. So this is stuff that kids can do too. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing is when you teach kids from a young age that they can do these things and that they can take responsibility for their own things and that they can help out around the house. And I can say this because this is what you did with us. Then they do, you know, like we might have to be reminded, but when you told me, Hey, there's a pile of laundry that needs to get folded. I knew what to do. So it wasn't (laughs) like you might've had to remind me to do it, but at least I knew how to do it. And I could go and do it on my own without supervision when I was like seven years old. Yeah. And the thing is too, you know, two and three year olds actually like cleaning with you. Mm -hmm. They stop liking it when they get older, but they like it then. So use that, you know, and, and build family time. Okay. I want to, I want to end our segment with this quote. Um, this is also from episode three, I think with that amazing family that was downsizing, you know, they say when we're doing laundry or working in the kitchen, we're sharing and we're talking, we're talking about our day. It's not something that takes away from our day. It's something that adds to our day. Exactly. You know, just spend time with your kids. Okay. Nobody needs to thank their clothing. Nobody needs to wake up your books to get the energy from your books. (laughs) You don't need to welcome your house, all right? We don't need to get into all the weird spiritual elements in the in the show. But it, I did find a lot, not all the episodes, but a lot of these episodes were fun to watch. Mm-hmm. And they are marriage affirming. And hey, fold your clothes. It's fun. Exactly. <laughs> so, okay, a little bit of a, of a um, not quite so serious millennial marriage, but I really did enjoy the show. Highly recommend it. Take it with a grain of salt, but let it change your life. Yeah, and if you need some inspiration for tidying up your house, it really is good. Is sex the one thing in your marriage it's hard to talk about? Do you have a hard time telling him what feels good? Do you have difficulty working through your differences in libido? One of the best tools to start those conversations and turn your sex life around is 31 Days to Great Sex. It's a series of short, daily challenges you work through with your spouse that are oh so fun. Check it out today. Reader question time. And unfortunately, today I've got an all too typical question. I get this kind of question several times a week, and it's a tough one. So let me read it for you. I don't have any kids yet, but there are things, stomach, nipples, calves, etc., that my husband doesn't like about me, and he's told me. 
I always kind of felt that there was something wrong and I asked him about it, but he always said, no, you're beautiful. But several times I've caught him turning around for a second or, or a third look at girls or posters. When I confront him about it, he always says he's sorry, but then it happens again and again. He's recently gotten lower libido too. He denies watching porn. He still says he's attracted to me, except for the things he mentioned and wants me to act as if I was sexy, hot and beautiful. I'm crushed. There's no way I can have sex now without thinking about everything that's happened and how he's comparing me to other girls. Just 20 minutes ago, I found out that he watched a nude sex scene the other day after I had fallen asleep beside him. He said he was imagining me with her boobs. I love him and there's no one else I could ever be with. And if this all falls apart, I don't ever want another man. Too much risk and hurt. Anyway, I just want my husband to look at me with some desire. All right. First of all, let me just say, if you can relate to this question, I am so so sorry. This is the kind of thing that makes me so angry because our society has turned sex into something which is only physical and we've taken out all the intimacy from it and it is wrecking sex lives. It is wrecking marriages. I just want to unpack this a little bit. God made sex to be intimate in three ways, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And by the latter two, what I mean is that you feel close to each other, you love each other, and you feel like you're one. Like as you're making love, you honestly know each other better. And that's the key. It's making love. It's not just having sex, okay? Those those are two very different things. <laughs> but what our society has done is they have made sex only about the body. That's what pornography does. It has nothing to do with relationship. It's only about the body. And we pair sexual response to sexual imagery, like, you know, porn, videos, pictures, whatever it might be. And little boys start this, you know, when they're teenagers, when they're 11, 12, they see these images. Often they're not even seeking them out. They see them by accident, but it stimulates that part of their brain. Often they start masturbating. And so now what you've done is you've paired sexual arousal and sexual response with pornography. And suddenly that rewires your brain so that what's sexy is this image of this body rather than a person. And pretty soon you cannot get aroused by a person at all. I mean, she says that her husband is starting to suffer from low libido. Very, very common. When guys use pornography a lot, they get low libido. Um, and it's not that they that they don't want sex. It's that they don't want sex with a person. <laughs> they only get find their sexual arousal works when it's about imagining something anonymous. So pornography, that's why he looks at posters, looks at strangers, etc. So this is not okay. And it will not get better unless he addresses it. It's only going to get worse. His libido will get worse. He'll start having um, erection issues, erectile dysfunction. So just a couple of thoughts, all right? Henry Cloud and John Townsend said something brilliant in their book, Boundaries. Many brilliant things, but I want you to remember what these five words that I'm about to say. Whatever you tolerate will continue. Okay? Whatever you tolerate will continue. And I think a lot of people see their husbands doing this stuff and they wonder, okay, what's the magic thing that I can say that will stop him from doing it? There is no magic thing you can say. It's all about how you react now. Let me give you an example. If you are out in public and he starts checking out other women, that is not okay. And it is okay to say, if you want to look at other women, I'm going to leave and then get up and leave. Seriously, do it. Your heart will be beating a million miles a minute. You'll feel so awkward. He might get angry, but it is not okay for him to do that to you. And not just you, it's not okay for him to do that to that other woman either. 
I think often men, um, not all men, but but men in this mindset feel that it's flattering to women to check them out in public. It's not. Most women find that kind of scary. Like when guys are checking them out, that is not a safe situation for most women. And so when he's doing that, he's hurting you and he's hurting that other woman. So it's okay to say, I'm going to leave, you know, get an Uber, take a bus home, whatever it might take. But do that enough times and he will get he will get the message. I can't do this out in public with my wife. This is serious. Will it cause problems in your marriage? Yeah, it might. He really may not like it. But you need to decide, is this something that is worth fighting for? And I think it honestly is. Because the road that he is on is wrecking his ability to be intimate with you. And when he can't be intimate with you, I can almost guarantee that he is not intimate with God either because there is a block that he has put up where he cannot be totally vulnerable with anybody anymore. That is what porn has taken from him. So you're not doing him any favors by tolerating this and you're not doing your marriage any favors by tolerating this. It's not just that it's hurting you. It's that it's hurting him and hurting your marriage as well. And so you need to decide what to do about it. I wish there was an easy answer. I really do. But he needs to get the message that you will not tolerate this. I would also really recommend, you know, bringing a mentor couple into this, seeing a counselor, like you're going to need some help. This is what the Christian community needs to be for, because there's so many women out there going through this and their husbands will say, well, it's no big deal. All men do it. Doesn't make it okay. And all men do not do it. All right. All men do not do it. My husband doesn't. My sons-in-law don't. This is not okay. So set those boundaries. I'm going to put a link to Covenant Eyes too because you can um, you can get that installed on your computers, your phones, your devices. Uh, it's a great tool for accountability and filtering. Um, if you use the coupon code TLHV for to love, honor, and vacuum, you'll get 30 days free and you can try it out. And I'll put some links to other posts too that can help. But please, you're worth it and your marriage is worth it and you do not need to be treated this way. Every week I like to pick a comment or an interaction that I've had on social media and just elaborate on it a bit. And I want to read to you a bit of a discussion I got into on Twitter. Okay, so here's the context. Somebody tweeted this. Divorce is toxic parenting. You don't get to punish that child with a single parent home because you fell out of love. And then someone else replied, toxic parenting would have been my parents staying together and forcing my brother and I to live with an abusive father. Being raised by a single parent is not a punishment. Okay, so I'm reading both of these things, and here's my issue. I think they're both right. Um, And so here's what I replied. She's right. Children of abuse do much better if parents divorce and they live with a good parent. At the same time, when parents just fall out of love and divorce, children do much worse. Divorce usually is awful on kids, but we must put the caveat except in cases of abuse. Okay, so here's what I was really trying to get at. Um, Judith Wallerstein did this huge long-term study. I think it came out in maybe the late 90s. I know I I wrote about it a lot when I was doing my newspaper column. Um, But she had followed children of divorce for several decades and just to see how they did. 
And what she found is that kids of parents who were in marriages that were pretty much loveless, but that had really low conflict. So they may not have gotten along, they may not have liked each other, but there weren't a lot of overt nasty conflict. They did much better than parents who divorced. And that included, and some of that included conflict, even included adultery, okay? But kids in marriages where there was high conflict, where it was abusive, where it was emotionally abusive, uh, where the parents were just fighting constantly, those kids did better when the parents divorced. So the vast majority of kids of divorce, she found, would have done better if parents had stayed married. But there was that one group of kids for whom divorce was actually the best thing that could have happened. And so that's why I think we need to always put these caveats in there. Um, and I'll put a link in the blog post for this podcast on um, my article on, on divorce and kids because it is important. But here's what I really want to get at. This is actually quite a common problem that I see. Somebody will tweet something and then someone will criticize it because of a caveat. And that caveat is usually true. But I find this in a lot of marriage advice. I'll say, you know, you should you should love your husband in this way, but then I'll have to qualify except in bad marriages, where actually if you were to do that, that's exactly the opposite of what you should do because that would only make it worse. <laughs> and I found myself on the blog doing this again and again. Like I'd say, okay, women, you really need to do this. Oh, except in this case, in which case, don't do it, please don't do it, don't, 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 don't. And I had a problem until I realized that my starting point was wrong. We need to stop talking about how to build good marriages, and we need to start talking about what Jesus wants in a situation. I believe that God always wants to be glorified, and he always wants people to look more like him. Romans eight twenty nine. he has predestined us to be transformed into the likeness of his son. That is God's ultimate will for us. And if we keep that as the starting point, then a lot of these discussions become much easier. You don't need as many caveats. You know, so when you show love to your husband, for instance, you're not going to enable sin. So when you ask, what is the loving thing to do right now? What is the thing that will most glorify God? Sometimes it actually doesn't look loving. It's the difference between being good and being nice. See, Jesus wants us to be good. Now, sometimes being good is the same as being kind or nice, but sometimes being good is pulling out a whip of cords and turning over tables. <laughs> being good is what points people to God. And I find that understanding that and keeping that foremost in our minds. Like, what is it that God wants me to do right now? What will most glorify God here helps us get away from these problems where we always have to be putting in so many caveats. Because the goal is no longer keeping our marriage together. The goal is no longer building a great marriage. The goal becomes glorifying Jesus. And as we do that, I hope most of us are going to be building great marriages. But you know what? There's always times where the best thing you can do to glorify Jesus is to leave an abusive relationship. So keep God at the forefront, and then a lot of these other problems become much clearer. That's what I found. And I'll put some links into some articles that I've written that clarify this too. Thanks for joining me for the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast, the place where I help women feel like marriage is less of a giant to-do list and more of a passionate adventure. We've been passionate today, we've done some problem solving, and we've had some fun. <laughs> Please join me again next week when we explore more about how we can live lives to the fullest. And as always, come find me on my blog at tolovehonorandvacuum.com, where my aim is to keep pointing all of you to Jesus. <laughs>